One of the hottest topics in the news lately is this Zika virus outbreak, a recent South American epidemic with global implications, particularly with the upcoming Olympic Games to take place this summer in Rio, Brazil. And actually, the first cases of acquired Zika in the U.S. were reported in Florida just a few weeks ago. But it's not a new virus to mankind. In fact, we've known about Zika for over half a century, even though it never seemed to threaten our way of life. In this episode of Brainwaves, Dr. Anna Cristancio of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia interviews an infectious disease specialist, Dr. Jennifer McGuire, on the topic. And to be honest, before putting this episode together, I thought I had a good grasp on the Zika epidemic. But after hearing Dr. McGuire lecture on this topic in a grand rounds at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and subsequently hearing her talk on the show, I've learned that there really is an incredible backstory, and there's much more to it than you hear on the news. So take a listen. Today we're going to talk about a topic that's been in the news quite a bit, and I'm sure will be in the news a lot more as we go through the summer approaching the Rio Olympic Games, Zika virus. First off, uh, as a really basic question, in medical school, I had never heard of Zika virus. And so if you could just kind of explain to us a little bit what Zika is and if there are any other viruses that it might relate to. So Zika virus is a member of the flavivirus family, and this is a family of viruses uh, that includes others that you've probably heard of. It includes dengue fever, West Nile virus, yellow fever, tick-borne encephalitis, and all of these are actually types of arboviruses. Um, Arboviruses, if you recall, stands for or represents arthropod-borne viruses, which means that they are transmitted by an arthropod, so a tick or a mosquito, or a sandfly. It's important to know that this particular species of mosquito is a daytime biter. So when you think about an infection like malaria, one of the preventative measures is to put up bed nets at night um, and to protect yourself at night with long clothing or long sleeve, long legged clothing. This is different for for Zika virus and dengue um, with these daytime biters because that it's not the issue after you go to bed. It's while you're up and around and doing your daily activities that you're going to get bitten. Zika virus has been around probably or been recognized since the mid-40s, when it was first discovered during a yellow fever surveillance project in Uganda in the Zika forest there. Zika actually means overgrown. And it was found coincidentally in a sentinel monkey that they were using to track yellow fever. It was later found in the mosquitoes in that region. After that one case, there were just a scattered number of human cases reported across the literature until it finally came out to public eye in 2007 when there was an outbreak on Yap Island of Micronesia. And this was a big enough outbreak that it generated a New England Journal of Medicine paper and was estimated to have infected about 75% of the population there. Did the things that are implicated with Zika virus, did they see the things that we're talking about now in Brazil? Not yet, not there. And part of the reason for that probably is because the population there is relatively small, just a couple thousand people. So this wasn't on the scale of the outbreaks that we're now talking about in Brazil. But after Yap Island, it disappeared for a little while, and then in 2013 emerged in French Polynesia. So this was now a much bigger population on the order of about 270,000 people. And with this particular outbreak, it was associated with Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is where the first question of that came about. 
It then, again, disappeared for a little while until 2015 when it appeared in Brazil. And it was in Brazil that the concerns with microcephaly arose. Interestingly, after the question of microcephaly and Zika virus came to light in Brazil, they went back and they looked at the 2013 French Polynesia outbreak, and there were actually some cases of microcephaly there as well. They just hadn't previously been reported. So it seems like Guillain-Barre syndrome and microcephaly are really the two big neurological sequelae that Zika virus are associated with. I, I think that that's true for now, but there are also case reports of other neurologic sequelae. So there have been case reports of meningitis and encephalitis, myelitis, and more recently, I think just presented at the American Academy of Neurology, there were a couple of cases of ADEM. So really, this is all kind of still a moving target for us. What would be some of the initial symptoms of Zika virus? The most commonly reported ones are a macular or a papular red rash, and that happens, we think, in probably about 90% of symptomatic patients. Uh, fever is common in more than half. Arthritis and arthralgias are fairly common, as well as non-purulent conjunctivitis. People can also sometimes complain of headache or myalgias or uh, extremity edema or vomiting, I would say those are less common. But the interesting thing is actually only we think about one in five people with infection are actually acutely symptomatic. So there are probably many more cases than are actually getting reported. One thing that you always have to think about is who is your patient and what have they been doing? So this is where things like social history come into play. Have they been traveling recently to a Zika endemic area um, or to anywhere else that might have other illnesses that you need to think about in your differential of those vague types of symptoms? And then as we're kind of thinking more towards the neurological things that kind of happen with, with uh, Zika virus, what time frame do we, do we think we're going to start seeing things like Guillain-Barre or encephalitis or even ADEM? I think we're still learning about those things. So let's talk about Guillain-Barre syndrome first. The, the case series that really suggested the causation relationship between Zika virus and GBS came out of that 2013 French Polynesia outbreak. And there they had a concurrent GBS outbreak that started about a month after they started seeing their Zika virus cases. When they went back and they tested individuals who presented with Guillain-Barre during that Zika virus outbreak, they didn't find virus. So they, they did not find positive Zika virus PCRs in any of those individuals, suggesting that this was not an acute reaction. But they did find serologic evidence of prior recent Zika infection. So I think probably um, within a couple of weeks of, of an acute infection, we might expect Guillain-Barre, similar to other infectious causes of Guillain-Barre. And as an aside, we, we think now in retrospect that this probably happens at a similar frequency to get Guillain-Barre syndrome as other infectious instigators like Campylobacter, for example. But this is a bigger deal because we are expecting, at least in the United States, a much larger absolute number of Zika virus cases than something like a Campylobacter case, which is why everyone's so nervous about the sheer number and the sheer volume of these types of cases that can come up. So as child neurologists, um, we 
constantly think about head sizes probably more than every other physician. But um, obviously, the case in Brazil came to light really because they saw an, a significant increase in microcephaly. So can you kind of tell us a little bit about how Zika um, is related to microcephaly and any sort of causative data that we have so far about that? Sure. So I think that it might be easiest to start with how the microcephaly epidemic came to light in Brazil. And the way that that happened was that between September and October of 2015, the Brazilian Ministry of Health started noticing an unexplained increase in the number of microcephaly cases that it was seeing. One specific state called Pernambuco in Brazil registered about 10 cases of microcephaly per year. Um, but in the year of 2015, up until November, they registered 141 cases. And so when that increase came around, they started asking in other regions of Brazil, and they began reporting similar increases in microcephaly. What we think that we know to this point is that it appears that Zika virus can infect a fetus during any trimester. In other torch infections, we classically frequently think of them as more first trimester infections where they're really interfering with neuronal gl growth and um, migration of those radial glial cells up to form your cortex. Uh, but it appears that Zika virus can actually go in, infect the brains, and destroy cells probably during any trimester of infection. By June, almost 8,000 cases had been reported. Do we have any sense yet about sort of even early developmental outcomes in some of these kids? Do they have some of the similar problems we expect with other kids who have microcephaly, or are they different somehow? I don't think that we actually have data yet on the neurodevelopmental outcomes, but what we do have data on is the neuroimaging data and what we see in these babies. There was a, a study in April in the British Medical Journal that looked at 23 babies that had a diagnosis of congenital infection presumably associated with Zika. Only a small proportion of these had Zika confirmed. And in these babies, in 20 of the 23, their head circumference was less than two standard deviations below the mean. Most of them, their anterior fontanelle was closed. And in most of them also, they had something that they refer to as craniofacial disproportion, which essentially means that something specifically interfered with brain growth after the skull and the skin around it had begun to grow, which means that something was destroying brain after it had already started to form. And that's actually kind of an atypical presentation with some of the other known congenital infections. And then when they went on to look at head CT and MRI in these babies, the common things that they saw were obviously a decrease in brain volume, but they also found a lot of malformations of cortical development in almost all of the babies in this study that they had MRI on. Most of these were frontal, but they also found cortical malformations in the insula, the parietal lobe, and the temporal lobe, and less in the occipital region. On head CT, they saw a lot of calcifications. And unlike some of the other congenital infections like CMV, these were not all periventricular, but they were actually more common to be found at the junction between the cortical and the subcortical white matter. Diagnosis is tricky with Zika virus. So 
if you catch them early enough and can do a PCR on the blood or the urine or another body fluid, then that's simple. That's an easy diagnosis. You know what you're dealing with. You're not getting false positives there. Where it gets harder is when you're testing them further out after you can no longer find the actual virus. So a common way to look for an infectious exposure is to look at acute and convalescent serology, and that's looking for antibodies, IgM, IgG. And people do that with Zika virus as well. But the tricky part is the antibodies are highly cross-reactive among the different flaboviruses. Your Zika virus serology may come back positive if you've had dengue virus in the past. In addition to just doing serologies and titers, they also use functional assays called plaque reduction tests that help look for the ability of the antibodies to neutralize a given virus. And so that is used concurrently with the antibody testing to try and sort these differences out. As we talk about all these different conditions that Zika virus has been associated with, why do you think that now we're seeing so many different neurological complications to this for a virus that's really been around, as you said, initially since the 1940s in some way or another? I think that there are a couple of possibilities. I think the first and most straightforward explanation might just be that more people are being infected and so rare complications are coming to light um, because we have enough to, to have that prevalence for a one in 4,000 case to come to light and for us to get an appreciable number of cases to report. But I think that there are a couple of other possibilities as well. Dengue virus, and I'm going to bring this back to Zika in a second. Dengue virus is an interesting virus in that when you're infected with it for the first time, you get the, the classic breakbone fever. So horrible aches and pains, high fever, you're miserable, but you get better. The second time that you get it, it can be much more dangerous and it can lead to a hemorrhagic fever and death. And the reason for that is related to something called antibody-dependent enhancement. So when you have your first dengue virus infection, as with any infection, your body mounts an immune response, you develop antibodies, you control the infection, and life moves on. Dengue virus actually has four different serotypes, though, and these serotypes tend to circulate in waves or in series or not exactly at the same time. And so after you defeat that first virus, Mm -hmm. you may be reinfected with a different strain. And when you're reinfected with that different strain, you would think, oh, good news, you have antibodies around to fight that. And what the antibodies do to the secondary virus is that they opsonize it, so they they glom onto it, and they cause endocytosis of this virus into myeloid cells like monocytes and macrophages. So normally that would be good because you are eating up the virus and getting it out of your system. But for dengue virus, it's actually inside those cells that the virus replicates. So by having your existing antibodies get the virus into these cells faster, you're actually driving more viral replication. So it's like a Trojan horse, essentially, for dengue virus. It's there, you, know, the, you think you're bringing something in to destroy it or something good, and then all of a sudden it takes over and takes over and destroys it. Yeah, so, that's exactly right. And yeah. so the virus replication goes haywire, and then you have these dramatically worsened clinical syndromes. 
And so there's there's a theory out there in the Zika world that is it possible that we are seeing more complications, more neurologic complications with Zika in populations that have been previously infected with dengue? And is this happening via one of these antibody-dependent enhancement responses like you would get with a second strain of dengue? And I think that's up for debate. That's a, a big conversation right now. If the virus stays isolated to the Aedes mosquito and the other modes of transmission do not become so prominent that it spreads like wildfire elsewhere, right. <laughs> um, I, I think that we can expect some cases further north, but we are hoping that it is not going to be ripping through the entire population as it has in prior outbreaks. Is this really just reflective of a more mobile world where you can get on a plane and hop from country to country at your whim and carry whatever endemic viruses you have with you as you do that. Um, and that's been part of the conversation with the Rio Olympics and what is the risk of this causing the Zika epidemic to spread more globally. And just in the last couple of weeks, there have been some really interesting risk assessments of this, trying to figure out, is this dangerous? Are we doing our global health a wrong turn by continuing on with the Brazil Olympics. And on a good note, it's their winter season now. And so mosquitoes are down, transmission should be down in general. But the, the people that have done these risk assessments also then went on to say, what is the likelihood that travelers to Brazil could acquire the infection and bring it back to their country via the Olympics if they weren't otherwise going to do so. So they're trying to say, say, would, would travelers be visiting these areas anyway and bring it back home? Or is there something special about the Olympics? And through a very long and elaborate explanation, <laughs> they actually decided that this only posed a risk to four different countries, mostly in Africa, where people don't routinely travel anyway and have a climate at home that could then support an ongoing Zika epidemic. I think that brings us to one of our last questions, kind of bringing it back to our patients that we talk to on a regular basis. How can we advise them? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of changing um, information out there. Uh, the CDC, I was looking just this morning, I just went on their on their website, and it seems like they've updated different parts of their recommendations really very frequently, including this past month, um, advising what, what pregnant women should do. I think from the standpoint of the neurologist, I, I think that we have to be really upfront with our patients that we just don't know. And I think because of so much of our, our uncertainty, we really need to be conservative. So for example, um, in terms of transmission, people are recommending that men or women who are considering becoming pregnant or having their partner become pregnant, they're recommending that they do not try that um, for at least six months after returning from a Zika endemic area. And it's not that we for sure know that the risk changes at six months. It's that's a prolonged period that feels about right right now, but that could change <laughs> over yeah. time. Other recommendations in general are regarding OB surveillance. And so if you have a pregnant patient who has acute symptoms of dengue and who has the right epidemiologic story, they need to get tested. Now, that then gets more difficult because we really don't know yet how to counsel women. We don't know if you are pregnant 
exactly what proportion will go on to have birth defects. And moreover, we don't know what those birth defects are going to result in long-term clinically. And so this part's difficult. And I think you just have to be upfront with your patients to say, we're really worried, but we just don't know yet. You need to do good basic mosquito precautions. So you need to wear insect repellent. And it can't be the nice smelling stuff that you get over the counter at the drugstore. It needs to be something that has proven efficacy to prevent mosquito bites. And the CDC actually has a list of EPA registered insectant repellents that have active ingredients that they agree with. So, so wear your insect repellent. The other thing is make sure that you don't have standing water around your house. So don't make breeding grounds for mosquitoes. If you have a little splashy pool for your toddlers to play in on hot summer days, dump it out when they're done. Don't leave it there for the whole week. And then any other takeaways you think we should think about as we kind of continue learning more about Zika and, and how do we sort of approach thinking about it as more information comes, comes to light? You know, one thing that people ask me about GBS is they say, well, well, who cares? So Zika virus causes GPS. For the most part, GBS is a recoverable illness. People overall do fairly well. Why is this such a big deal? Well, the big deal is because of the sheer numbers that this could cause. So again, if such a large proportion of our population in the U.S. gets infected, even if it is a minuscule proportion that developed GBS, the absolute number could be very high. And do we have enough IVIG for this epidemic to spread across the country if needed? Do we have enough ventilators in different hospitals? And that's going to have to be something to be considered and hopefully thought of before the issue arises with a contingency plan. All right. And on that note, thank you very much uh, for teaching us about this topic that has a lot of information in the news, but it's hard to all kind of put together. So thank you. <laughs> that was Dr. Zana Cristancho and Jennifer McGuire at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. A lot of information here, and I'm sure there's much more to come. I'm Jim Sigler for Brainwaves. See you next week. Thanks for listening to Brainwaves today. If you like what you just heard, you can find more related material on the web at brainwaves.me or find us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio. Feel free to contact us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. Be sure to check out our iTunes archive for older episodes. This episode was produced by Jim Siegler. Music by Kai Engel. I'm Erica Mejia. Join us next time for another edition of Brainwaves. Thank you.